Kind of what we talked about last week, you know, this is probably the, the most glorious part of the Gospel of John. If, if you ask my opinion, like, this is it, this, these, these few weeks that we've been, although we've seen for a, a good long while now into going into 20 chapters today, all of it is weighty and beautiful, um, and then, but it, it culminates in, in these moments where we're at um, last week, where we saw the weight but also the beauty of, of the cross where we saw the, uh, just the heartbreak, but at the same time the victory of the cross. And what I, I hope, and, and I told this to a few, few people already this past week, um, if, if last week wasn't for you, it was definitely for me. Like that, just preparing and looking at the cross and, and the, the spiritual implications of the cross, um, I, I needed that last week uh, for my own personal soul. And so I hope that, that's, that that also encouraged you and reminded you of just how much God loves you um, through, through what he's done through his, uh, with his son at the cross. And we looked at those spiritual implications, right? There's some physical details or some physical things that, that we touched on, and we, but we didn't want to spend too much time because we wanted to look at those spiritual implications um, of what Jesus accomplished, like what did, what did the cross accomplish for you and me spiritually, right? And that's where we looked at, you know, what God's justice was satisfied on the cross. Uh, what he required for sin was paid for in full at the cross. And, and, and at the same time that it was paid for, we were liberated from our sin. We were, he carried our sin away as far as the east is from the west, and we, we don't pack it with us any longer. And so that releases us, that gives us freedom. And so when you hear us talk about freedom in Christ, that's freedom that we're talking about, that we've been liberated from the, the slavery and the shame of sin. And then most importantly, that through that work that we've been made right with God again, we've been, uh, our friendship has been mended with God. We've been reconciled to him through what was done on the cross. But let me say this before we move forward today. If if that's where the story ends, we don't have a good story. If, that, if last week was the, the, the moment uh, that, that, that the gospel story closed, that that was the end, that he did accomplish all of these things, but we're left with a dead Jesus hanging on a tree, we don't have a good story. We don't have good news. We don't have anything to celebrate here this morning. If Jesus was left dead hanging on a tree... If Jesus stayed on the cross, then you and I should just stay home because there's nothing to celebrate. And while I did stress last week very boldly that uh, this was the most important event in, in human history, um, I just want to kind of go back and edit myself because I would be remiss if I didn't include the resurrection as part of this event that shifted all of history. So it is the cross and the resurrection that is the most important event that has ever happened in human history. It's shaped everything leading up to it and has shaped everything since then. And so if you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I am so thankful that you are with us this morning. I'm so thankful that you're here because this morning what, what we want to do is we want to put the reality of Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. We want to set that before you today. We want to be able to walk with you through that and process that with you. Um, and my hope is that you would realize what Jesus has done. From, from just looking at the cross last week and looking at the, the resurrection, what, we set this before you with the hopes that you would know what Christ 
has done so that you would believe that he is, in fact, the Christ and, and that he is the, the Son of God and that by believing in him that you would, make, you would have life in his name. That is why we have this gospel. And so I want us to take a look at John's eyewitness account of the resurrection, the, 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 the record that he's given us of uh, what he saw personally take place that he's recorded for us. And so we're going to be in chapter 19 today. We're going to finish chapter 19, and we're just going to kind of spill over into chapter 20 today. And so we're kind of continuing to journey through uh, this gospel. And you see in verse 38 is where we're going to pick up uh, today. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, and these things he's referring to is what we saw last week. After Jesus uh, was uh, lifeless on the cross, and after it was confirmed that he was dead on the cross, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he, he came and took away his, his body. So Joseph is this wealthy Jewish leader um, who was kind of a low-key follower of Jesus up to this point um, because you, you see that because of his care, his, his concern for wanting to, to, to take care of Jesus' body. Uh, but up to this point, he had kind of been uh, behind the scenes, not wanting to let the cat out of the bag that he followed Jesus. Um, and then in verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. I want you to recall in chapter 3 where we met Nicodemus. This was the Pharisee who, who covertly came to Jesus under the cloud of night um, because he had seen signs, he had seen miracles, he had seen Jesus doing some things. And, and, and it's, it's interesting, we've already established that the goal of those signs and those miracles was for like this greater reality. It wasn't for us to kind of hone in on the, the, the signs and the miracles themselves, but they're given to us so that we may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And so here we have uh, Nicodemus in chapter 3 coming to Jesus because he saw some things. So you see the, 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 the purposes of the signs and miracles working themselves out uh, with Nicodemus approaching him. And you, it's, it's, here's the deal. You have to keep reading the story, right? Because we never really find out what happened to Nicodemus until we get 17 chapters later, nearly a year and a half later, uh, before we really find out what was the outcome of that encounter that Nicodemus had with Jesus that night. And we, we finally uh, get it here that he was, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. That, he, that God had actually rescued Nicodemus at some point after his uh, encounter uh, with Jesus. And so uh, verse 40 says, uh, They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So 75 pounds of aloes and spices and myrrh and roughly another 25 pounds of linen that they would wrap around the body. And, and this was all um, to, to help prepare the body for the decaying process. So they're adding 100 pounds of weight to this body uh, to prepare for that decaying process because they still don't get it. They're preparing Jesus as if he's a dead man who's going to decay and waste away because they don't get what Jesus has been saying the whole time. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now moving into chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So th- throughout the Gospel of John, um, he's referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Like, it's a bit comical to me. I don't know, like he's walking around, it kind of seems like, hey, dude, you're kind of really pumping yourself up here. You know, you're the disciple whom Jesus um, loves. But it's also beautiful. And now here's, here's, a, here's what I want to point out. This is a beautiful thing right here. That every one of us who follow Jesus should walk around with this. Like we should walk around with the, the understanding that I am the one whom Jesus loved. You are the one who Jesus loves. Like we should walk around uh, with that on our hearts, especially in light of what we learned about the cross just last week. Especially in light of that, that God, we saw it just all throughout every step that God loves us. God loves us, and He did something on our behalf because we were unable to do it ourselves. He sent His Son, and so we should walk around that. I am the one whom Jesus loves. Those of us who follow Jesus, you are the one who Jesus loves. Let us walk around with that. This is our story. So Mary Magdalene runs to Peter, um, and, and Jesus, and, 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 okay, so self-proclaimed Jesus' favorite disciple. Uh, they, 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 she runs to them, and in the second part of verse 2, um, it says, and, and said to them, she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So she's not thinking resurrection, right? She's heard the story too, but in her mind, she isn't thinking resurrection. The most reasonable explanation at this point is that someone just took the body of Jesus. Someone stole the body of Jesus because he's not there. She's there because the Sabbath is over, and it was just, it was a custom to return to the tomb to, to, to redress the body for proper burial. So that's why uh, she's, she's come there, and just like Joseph and just like Nicodemus, she's there to do that because she still doesn't get it. She was even closer to Jesus than these other two guys. And Jesus told her about the resurrection, and she's there to redress the body to help prepare it for the decaying process because she doesn't get it. Verse 3, chapter 20, verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Who do you think that guy is? The, the one whom Jesus loved strikes again. And no other gospel records this. But it's here. For all eternity, we will know that John is the one whom Jesus loved, and he's faster than Peter. Like that, I have zero theological information for you. None whatsoever. Only thing possibly that I could offer you is that some supporting evidence that he might be younger than Peter. But that's about it. There's no significance theologically there. The fact that, you know, if I'm writing the gospel and I beat him there, like, oh, yeah, Peter's awesome about everything, but I bet he can't outrun me. I'm going to go ahead and put that one in there, right? Yeah. So verse 5, stooping and stooping in, this is John, the, the one whom Jesus loved, who's faster than Peter, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb because he's just always obnoxious, and he's just going to blow right in. Um, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Picture it. Picture this, that Jesus is laid dead in this tomb for three days, and all of a sudden, 
his heart starts pumping blood through his veins. His muscles and his nerves start firing, and he's, he's coming to life, and he starts to unwrap himself of all of this that they've wrapped him with because they didn't get it. They didn't believe that he was actually going to rise from the dead. And so here he is pulling all of this garbage off of him because he's not decayed, he's not dead, and he's unwrapping all of these things. And then he's sitting there in this tomb, <laughs> folding, doing laundry in the tomb, right, and setting this off to the side and gets up and walks out of the tomb, alive. That, uh, we're we're going to get into some of the evidences of, of Scripture, but just let me tell you, if you're going to rob a tomb, if you're going to steal a body, uh, you're not going to worry about doing the laundry on the way out. So that's a, that's a big uh, debate uh, among those who are skeptics, and just so you know, that's, that's why we have the picture of that. Because grave, grave robbers don't do laundry in the grave. Verse 8, then the, then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Caught that, in case you didn't catch it the first time? The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, so if you didn't catch the fact that he was faster than Peter, we're going to go ahead and recircle, and yeah, he's faster than Peter. We're going to put in here twice. He also went in, and he saw and believed. Imagine that. Now he believes the resurrection. He sees the linen and how it has been laid out, and he believes. There's no way anyone would have robbed the grave. He has risen. He is alive. For as yet, he did, they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The resurrection, as we've said before, is God's yes and amen to Jesus' work on the cross. That's how we know that the work of Christ has been satisfied fully and God looks at him as the one who covers it all. The resurrection is his yes and amen. And so by show of hands, um, how many of you uh, have heard this story before? The resurrection story? Most. Most of you have heard the story. Um, most of us lean into this story around Easter time, right? Because that's the moment that it kind of centers. But I just want us to realize and, and, and um, embrace the reality that this, um, this is important for us right now, today. And it's going to be important for you tomorrow. And it's important for you every single day as you follow Jesus, this resurrection Story. So we sing songs about Jesus dying. We sing songs about the resurrection uh, and how he rose from the dead all the time. But do you embrace what you're saying? Do you embrace what you're singing when you sing these songs about Jesus being a dead person who rose to life? Do you embrace that? Do you believe the fact that Jesus is alive and that it is a massive deal? By show of hands, if you were to be honest, how many of you have trouble believing that? I have trouble believing the resurrection often. And if we can all just be really honest, it's a really cool story that's part of our faith, but do we embrace it? Do we really believe the resurrection? Do we really believe that Jesus is alive right now? Do we, do we actually believe that, that, that Jesus has risen from the dead? He was a dead person who came to life, that God raised him from the dead, and that he walked out of the tomb, and that he is alive 
today ruling and reigning over us. I have trouble believing that at times. And so I want to accomplish two things today. I want to accomplish two things. I want to um, walk through. We've done this in the past, but I want to, I want to kind of come around it again. I want, to, I want to kind of focus in on some evidence, some supporting evidence that, that, that I believe the resurrection is, in fact, a true story that is real, that we can fully believe and embrace as reality. It's not just some fable. Um, so I want to do that. I want to set some evidence before you. Um, and I want to do that so uh, not just so you can have more information, uh, not so you can be a good apologist and you can go and you can debate and argue with people who may or may not believe that. I want to I put some solid ground under your feet as a follower of Jesus. Because I need that too. Because I have trouble believing the resurrection at times. And so that's, that's why I want to set evidence before you, but I also want to set before you the implications of the resurrection. What does that mean for us then? If we do embrace the resurrection, if we do believe the resurrection, and if it is a true thing that really happened, it's a historical moment in time, then what do we do with that? How does that shape who we are and what we think and how we live life? And so I just want to walk through some evidence and then we'll kind of go through implications. So the first supporting evidence that I'm going to just set before you, and it's probably the most widely uh, talked about one, is you just consider uh, the radical transformation of the disciples of Jesus. Just think about their transformation, who these guys are, and what they ended up doing. If you read through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're not painted with a pretty brush. Like who they are and, and, and the, the stories that we capture, the background and the personalities of these guys, they're, they're, they're not like the, the elite. They're not the, they're not the top-notch guys. A lot of times they're just clueless and they're ridiculous. They say things that are dumb, that are completely inappropriate at times. They really don't know what's going on half the time. They're just kind of following Jesus and asking dumb questions and making comments about things that, do, that doesn't really align with what Jesus has been telling them. Think about who these guys are. And they're following him, but they don't understand who he is most of the time. They don't understand what he's about most of the time. And when Jesus is arrested, what you'll see is the disciples scatter. Like they're gone to a point where even Peter would say over and over again, I don't even know that cat. I don't even know who he is. Like, that's the disciples. That's the guys that we're dealing with here. And then the resurrection of Jesus happens, and he encounters his disciples over, over a course of 40 days. Repeatedly, he comes to his disciples, encountering them after the resurrection. And in this 40-day period, the disciples move from being clueless, ridiculous, um, I don't want to get too ugly, but just I don't want to call, call them a, a lot of bad names, but you get what I'm talking about. They, everything that they're about, they encounter Jesus and then effect, become these incredibly uh, effective um, gospel uh, advancers, these church planters and, and witnesses for the gospel. Of the 12 disciples, uh, Matthias was one replacing Judas in Acts after Judas had hung himself for selling Jesus out in the, in the book of Acts. They replace him uh, with Matthias. Eleven of these twelve disciples um, would be executed for their testimony that Jesus is alive. Like they would go willingly to their death with the message that he rose from the dead. Like think about who these guys are and then where they were moved to after they encountered the resurrected Jesus. 
Peter. He, history would tell us that he would be crucified uh, nearly upside down on a cross that's kind of shaped like an X, crucified because he wouldn't shut up about the resurrection. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from a building, history would tell us. Uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to execute him. They threw him from a building, uh, but he didn't die. He only shattered his knees and his, and, his, and his legs down, and so he's down, crippled on the ground. And so they run down to the building and club him to death because he wouldn't shut his mouth about the resurrection. The gospel writer, John, that we're talking about here was the only one of the twelve that, that wasn't executed, but instead he died just an old man. But they did attempt to take his life by boiling him to death. Let's just see if we can boil him to death because he won't shut up about the resurrection. And at nearly 90 years old, after he had survived that, an old man, the rest of them were, were uh, it's, it's history would tell us that, that John was probably younger of the disciples, and so he lived uh, longer, wasn't executed. They tried um, that he would be exiled to a place um, where he would die full of scar tissue from an attempt to be boiled to death, telling people about the resurrection would not stop talking about it. Here these guys are. Jesus died from, Jesus did rise from the dead and he is alive. And we can look at how this radical transformation of the life of the disciples uh, just supports that and holds that up. These guys didn't have that kind of boldness before. And if you're going to pack around a lie, would you be willing to be boiled to death over something that you made up? Would you be willing to be crucified? Would you be willing to be beat to death with clubs because of something that you made up? He is alive. But considered into the nearly 500 other eyewitnesses who also saw him alive, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians as he's trying to uh, encourage the church about the resurrection, he says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. A group of 500 people at one time, he would say, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So many skeptics would say that this event didn't really happen and that what you had was 500 people who made up this story to get the Christian movement off the ground and moving. Now, I don't know about your church background or, or if you grew up in church, but I can, I can firmly tell you this. You can't get 500 Christians to get together on anything, much less a story like this. We're always going to have some kind of disagreement or some opinion about something. And so here we have 500 people agreeing that Christ, they did see Christ post-resurrection. 500 Christians agreeing on something that's more miraculous than someone rising from the dead. These people really saw Jesus, and at the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he said, hey, if you don't believe me, most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Like, this is the, I'm telling you what I know, but there are nearly 500 other people who are still alive today that will validate what I'm saying right now. Go ask them. He did rise from the dead, and he is alive. The resurrection is a real historical event. Or consider Jesus' family worshiping him. 
My mom likes me a lot. I would even venture to say that she loves me. I might be stretching it, but she might even think I'm perfect. But if I were to go to her today and say, I'm God, I don't think she would worship me as God. This was Mary, and this was a, a big deal in first century Jewish families to worship any other God but Yahweh of the Bible himself. That that was, you would, if you were found guilty of, of aiming your worship to any other God but Yahweh, that, you, that was punishable by death. So it's a big deal. And yet we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's willing to forsake her own life, holding on to the promise that God gave her over 30 years prior that this is the one. This is the one that I've sent. And you embrace him as God himself. And even if I was to convince my mom that I was God, I am most assured that I would not be able to convince my siblings that I'm God. Like, they know the list. They know a lot of things on my list that you don't know about, nor does my mom know about, that they've seen, that, that, that disqualifies, my, disqualifies me from being a sinless person. They know me. And it would be quite comical if I went to them and said, I'm God, worship me as God. You would want to see that show. Yet we have James, the brother of Jesus, worshiping him as God. Imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother, like you're never right about anything. Every time you're in an argument, you're on the wrong side of that. Imagine that frustration, right? But here's the deal. The resurrection was actually what made James believe. You remember that his brothers, they were just like, who is this cat? Like, they didn't even believe who he was at all. But once the resurrection happened, they definitely believed that he was God the pastor of the largest church at that time in Jerusalem, his brother James, dies a martyr's death, stubbornly holding on to the reality that big brother was in fact God, that he was in fact God, and that he was alive. Or even think about the enemies. Think about the enemies of God themselves. Think about on Pentecost when Peter stands up and he preaches the first gospel message where the church movement is going to get actually lifted off the ground and moving. A multitude of devout Jews are there in his presence. And he starts preaching the resurrection, preaching his account of the resurrection. And their response, most of whom were there shouting, crucify him, crucify him are now crying out for God to, to save them, to forgive them and to save them. You have Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, who would oversee the execution of Stephen, one of the church's deacons. And as he did that, he approved, and he moves on to Damascus to create more havoc, to wreak more havoc, to arrest, to kill more Christians and while he's on his way, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And when he does, he is radically transformed into one of the most savage gospel preachers and church planners that the world has ever known. We're here because of, we're looking at Scripture. Most of your New Testament is all about Paul and what he wrote as far as pointing us to Jesus, pointing us to the gospel. And so you can go to many places in the world. Um and visit enshrined tombs today. Like you can, 
you can go to the cave of the patriarchs. That's in Hebron, right? That's in, um, uh, in, in the Middle East there where, where Abraham is enshrined. Uh, you can go to that place today. You can go to Sri Lanka where, where Buddha is enshrined today. You can go to all of these places. Muhammad, he is enshrined in Saudi Arabia today. That's where his remains are. That's where his bones are today. But there's nothing special about the place where we presume Jesus might have been buried for a few days. There's no enshrinement. There's no decoration because it is just an empty hole in the side of a hill. We don't celebrate anything there because he's not there. He has risen. And that's what makes his tomb so special is that it's empty. Nothing there. And so I can go on and on and on to validate the resurrection. We can pick up on a bunch of things like the rapid advancement, the rapid growth of the church. Just in 300 years, nearly 34 million believers. Uh, that's a movement uh, of, of Christianity, to say the least. Jesus appeared to women first. If you're going to make up a lie in first century uh, uh, context here and in this culture right here, you would definitely not put a woman as the one to validate, be a witness to Jesus because their witness was invalid. It didn't count for anything. And so if you're making up a story, you wouldn't say that Jesus encountered a woman first because that wouldn't hold any weight. It only makes sense to put right down here that Jesus appeared to women if, in fact, that's what happened. That's it. And so if none of this lands on you with concrete assurance that the resurrection did, in fact, happen and that there's so much supporting evidence that the resurrection did happen, one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is that Jesus is still alive and he's still changing people like me. There are a room full of people in here who will attest that he is in fact alive. That he has come in and, and ruined all of my plans and all of my life and made me a new person and has forgiven me of my sin and has rescued me and reconciled me. And so we have our testimony today as supporting evidence that Jesus is still alive and changing people. I would have never loved God had He not shown up and revealed Himself to me. I would have never been looking for God had He not been looking for me. So He sent His Son, Christ. And the greatest evidence of that resurrection moment is that my own life has been made new. That many of you in this room, your own life has been made new through what Jesus has accomplished both at the cross and at the grave. So what does this mean for us? What, is, what does this mean for us then? What do we do with this? How do we navigate life? How do we embrace this reality? Just a, a look at that 40-day period that Jesus, between resurrection and the, 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 the last conversations he had with his disciple, it'll tell us a lot about what it means for us. What's important? Jesus would gather his disciples and he would mobilize them around this mission, right? In, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, the Great Commission, it says Jesus came to them and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He rallied. He shows up to his disciples. And in that 40-day period, that's what it's about. It's about rallying together his disciples and mobilizing them around this mission. But, 
Before he sends them on this mission, he would say in Acts chapter 1, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Don't, don't get moving yet, guys. Don't leave just yet. Here's the mission, but here's how you're going to accomplish it. It's not going to get done through any of your own power, any of your own will. None of that. You're not going to be able to accomplish it, but through this way right here. You wait right here for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He says, you only have my authority under the guidance and the power of the Spirit alone. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So let us not get caught up with a bunch of peripheral things that really don't matter, that's not focused on the mission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. So let me connect one more reality for us today. The resurrection matters because it is connected to this moment that is called the ascension. These two are connected together. And right now, what makes this so important is that in this moment, while I'm telling you this glorious news about Jesus, that he is in heaven, he is alive, he is ruling, and he is reigning as king right now. And that's what's important. That's why it's so important to, to know that the resurrection is directly connected to the ascension because Jesus is alive right now. And the one who removed his crown and stepped off of his throne and into this world. The one who knew no sin yet became sin for us. Lived the life that we should have lived. Died the brutal death that we deserve, that you and I deserve, and carried our sin as far away from us as possible before overthrowing the, the sting of death and rising from the grave, now this king steps back on his throne. Now he's back in his kingdom. And he is alive and he is ruling and reigning even in this moment. Imagine the worship of myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands of angels when he ascends and the doors of heaven open up and he takes his rightful place. Just imagine what's going on in that moment. He is king. Jesus is our king. He is the king over every other king. He is the king over every ruler. And he is the king over every government. He is the king over every president. He is king and he is actively reigning and he is actively ruling in our world even today. And so what I hope for you as an individual, what I hope for me as an individual, what I hope for us as a church family is that the resurrection would do for us what it did for those early disciples. That's what I hope for us. That's what my prayer is for me. That's what my prayer is for all of us, that we would embrace the reality of the resurrection and no matter what it costs to take this story to the world. That's what my prayer is, that it would do for us what it did for those early followers, that it would empower the way we live our lives. That I, we're constantly walking in, in the, the, the mobility and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that we're a sent people on a mission to tell a story. We got to talk about this a lot in our new members this morning. Um, our new members gathering where we got to talk about evangelism and mission. And, and, and just 
let me recap with a, just a few words saying that uh, your priority is this mission as a believer. It is not secondary. It is not a tertiary item. But it is the primary mission of your life. And so you don't go to work tomorrow. You don't go to class tomorrow. And, and that is your primary goal. And if, if it just so happens that the opportunity presents itself, you might try to make a disciple or two. Do you see how that makes discipleship secondary? No, no, no. You're going on a mission. You are sent people on a mission with the story of the resurrection. And you get the privilege of getting an education or a paycheck. Just look at it that way. Like that's the secondary part of it. But the primary part is that we are sent people. And the resurrection shows us who Jesus really is. Like the disciples, we don't get Jesus without the resurrection. We don't understand Jesus without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, he's just a good guy. He's, he's got some profound things to say without the resurrection. He's just a political rebel without the resurrection. So we don't really understand Jesus without it. The resurrection shines a light on Jesus and says, I am God. I am far more than what you can understand me to be. I am actually God. And so the resurrection gives us an incredible boldness because of this. Like, I love watching the story of this, these disciples unfold. After the resurrection, you see how this thing plays out. They, they live their life like they've got nothing to lose because they don't. That should encourage us. Yeah, we're going to kind of pick on their simple-mindedness and their ridiculousness sometimes and their lack of understanding. But at the end of the day, these guys carried it across the line where they had nothing to lose. That's how they walked around. That's how they lived their life. What on earth? What on earth do we have to lose if we have Jesus? What do we have to lose if we have Jesus? Nothing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. No enemy on earth has authority and power over our king. We've got nothing to lose at all. So you can give away everything, even your own life. And Jesus would call some of us to this because he's the king of the resurrection and because he rose from the dead, he is also able to raise you and me from the dead. We don't have anything to fear. The resurrection unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit. You see how that unfolded. He rises from the dead. He mobilizes his people around this mission. And he says, but here's how it's going to happen. 
It's going to happen in the power of the Spirit. The same power that these early disciples operated in, that, that worked through them, we have in us because we belong to King Jesus. So we can, we can navigate this world with the same kind of boldness, with the same kind of attitude that there's nothing to lose because we have the same power that the early disciples had. Those of us who follow Jesus today, you and me who, who would call ourselves followers of Jesus today, we have the same privilege and responsibility that was given to the early disciples. You and I have that same privilege and responsibility to go and tell the story of the resurrection. And whenever they're hanging your beaten body on a tree, you still don't stop talking about the resurrection. You continue to talk about the resurrection. And as I said a few weeks ago, we all have our unique giftedness in the church. Like God gives, he apportions gifts to us of different kinds so that we may build one another up. But we all share two common callings. Every one of us who follow Jesus, we all share two common callings. We are all missionaries and we are all worship leaders. Every single one of us. We are a sent people and as we go, we point people to Jesus. Every single one of us. So this should change the way you interact with your coworker in the morning. When you go to work in the morning, understanding that your primary calling as a believer in Jesus is that you are a missionary and a worship leader changes how you encounter your, your, your coworker or your classmate or your friend or your family member tomorrow. It changes everything. And the resurrection, and here's the, the beautiful thing, and I'm going to try to wrap it up here. The resurrection gives us this incredible hope. It gives us hope for today, and it gives us hope for the future. Just listen, because Jesus is really ruling and reigning, even now, the alive Jesus, then not only does John get to be his really close friend, but we also get to be his close friend. I'm hopeful. And through his accomplishment at the cross, what he did at the cross, we've been reconciled to God. We've been reconciled to him. And now we can have a meaningful and a real relationship, a real friendship with God through what Christ has done. Some of us, including myself, have unbelieving or wayward family members or friends. Like I think if I talk to everyone in the room right now, that want, you would be able to recall someone that you wish would see the beauty of Jesus and they just don't. Or that they're trusting in something else besides Jesus for their enjoyment. Like, I think we would all have that. But I have hope because the resurrection gives me incredible hope knowing that when I talk to God about this, when I'm praying, when I'm talking to God about this, that I'm not standing in, in front of some enshrined tomb with a dead body inside it gives me incredible hope knowing that I'm talking to a living God. One who hears my prayers because of what His Son has done on the cross. I have incredible hope that He is King over everything and He obviously loves us and He proved it at the cross. Some of you in this room, you don't believe. You're not trusting in God for your enjoyment right now. You're trusting in other things to satisfy you right now. But I have incredible hope for you. 
I have incredible hope because I have a living God that, will, that I am certain that He will reveal Himself to you in one way or the another. And my prayer is that you would see Him as beautiful, that you would see Him as irresistible, that all of your enjoyment and all of your satisfaction can only be found in Him. The future hope that comes from this resurrection is what John was describing in Revelation 21. And I'll read this text as, uh, as we close. In verse 21, this is, this is John receiving the vision of the new, king, new heavens and the new earth, and this new kingdom. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is our future hope. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is fantastic news. Because it would go on, he would say, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So all of your sad moments are going to come untrue. And death shall be no more. We won't experience sickness and death anymore. That's fantastic news. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The resurrection gives us that hope. Like, do you believe the resurrection? Do you believe that there's a time and a place in eternity that there's not going to be any more pain, any more mourning, any more crying, any more death, any more hurt, any more sin? Do you believe it? Do you embrace that? For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You believe them, embrace them. And he said to me, it is done. We've heard that before. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will will be my son. Let's pray.